Good evening, everybody. How, how are you, Mr. R. Free Mormon? I think somebody yelled RFM at the end. I think they did. I think that was in there. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you to play the whole thing again. But how are you doing, Mr. Real? I'm doing good. Somebody complained last week. By the way, folks, we'd love to hear from you. Somebody complained last week that the applause at the beginning of every show is annoying as hell to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll certainly be willing to take it out if that's the feelings of a large chunk of you. But uh, we'd love your feedback. I'm doing great. Uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation today with you. Uh, this has uh, been a fun one that I've been preparing for a lot of weeks. But before we get started on it, uh, I thought I'd turn some time over to you and just see if there's anything going on in your life or uh, in your awareness of events going on or anything that you'd want to want to bring up. Well, my new podcast, Brush Up Your Shakespeare, is proceeding apace. We are up to Hamlet Act 1, Scene 5, and that one has not been recorded yet, though I hope to get to that this weekend, trying to turn one of those out every week and getting lots of good response from people. There isn't a huge following yet. We did crack a 1,000 subscribers. I almost said describers. And so I'm really grateful for that. Also, Mormon Sunday School, a weekly podcast in which you are now taking part. And I saw that just today you released an episode as well. Yeah, I'm tackling the Gospel Principles Manual, trying to give people the the faithful, basic Mormon doctrine, help people... um, know what has changed from an older version of Mormonism to today. And then lastly, let the investigator or the non-member or the new member sort of sense what is the deeper doctrines that aren't being uh, taught by that basic manual. They're not using that in the ward anymore at the church level inside the two-hour block, but I think it's a great manual to dive into basic Mormon principles and and doctrines. Yes, and I will just say that Bill Real first told me that he wanted to do an episode on the the Spalding theory, the Solomon yeah. Spalding theory. Yeah, and um, he that was like two months ago, and he was trying to prepare me for this day when it would be airing. And I just want to say, Bill has done a ton of research on this, yeah. and you're going to be seeing how much research that he did as we go through tonight's show. In fact, it may be a two parter. We'll see how it. How it goes, but there's actually a lot of material to cover when it comes to the Solomon Spalding theory. And I was unaware that there was so much evidence relating to this issue. Yeah, me too, by the way. I, this is uh, generally some of these episodes end up being something where I always wanted to go into that area of church history, never did. And it just, this gives me a good reason to spend some time and do it. And I also was, sort of overwhelmed by the amount of evidence that is out there. And so we'll tackle that today. I also want to make just a mention, our biggest donor to uh, our work uh, has to pull back their donations for a time at least, uh, at least for about a six-month period, maybe longer. And uh, I have reached out to all of the donors of uh, that, that contribute to either Mormonism Live or to Mormon Discussion generally and have asked for donors to fill in that void. And and a lot of you stepped up and and made up a large chunk of what we'll be missing. But, and I want to thank you for that. But for folks who do want to help and support the program, uh, we really could use your donations at present and would ask that you go to mormonismlive.org or go to mormondiscussions.org. Click the donate button. Pull the drop-down menu down if you love this show. Click Mormonism Live and donate five or ten bucks a month, 
uh, it would be uh, a, a really big help to us. And I do want to just say to the donor that is stepping back, your support has been monumental. And I hope in no way that me asking for folks to step up is offensive to you at all. We deeply appreciate all that you've done uh, to support Radio Free Mormon and myself, uh, Maven, and the show. And uh, thank you from the bottom of our heart and, and just would hope that maybe folks can help us make up the difference in the meantime. So really would love that. All right, let's jump into it unless you've got anything else. No, let's get to the Solomon Spaulding theory. Let's do it. So why don't you set the stage for us? Help us understand sort of the constraints we're in based on the church's narrative about uh, Sidney Rigdon, Joseph Smith, and the Book of Mormon. Yes, if you can go back to your main slide, I was wondering if you plugged into the AI artwork thing that you wanted Sidney Rigdon to look like Kevin Klein. It does look like Kevin Klein. I gave it two or three pictures of Sidney Rigdon and asked it to create something that I could use. And this is what it came up with. And compared to the pictures of Rigdon, it actually is halfway decent, but it does look like uh, Mr. Klein too. Yes. Playing the part of Sidney Rigdon tonight will be Kevin Klein. Nice. Okay. So here's the basic church uh, version, the church history version about Sidney Rigdon. And what it is is this, is that Sidney Rigdon does not meet Joseph Smith until December of 1830. Sidney Rigdon is a Campbellite minister over in Ohio who is introduced to the Book of Mormon by Parley P. Pratt, who's one of those first missionaries down to the Lamanites. But remember, he takes that trip over to Ohio before they go to Missouri. And Parley Pratt gives him a copy of the Book of Mormon. Sidney Rigdon reads it in 14 days. He knows it's the Word of God, and he converts his entire congregation to Mormonism. And then, in December of 1830, he heads to New York to meet Joseph Smith. And that's the first time church history tells us that they met, which is obviously after the Book of Mormon came off the press in March of 1830. Yep. And uh, I want to give folks a quick synopsis of the theory. So the Rigdon-Spalding theory suggests that Solomon Spalding wrote a fictional manuscript called Manuscript Found in 1812 or 1813, and that it described ancient American inhabitants. Spalding left the manuscript at a Pittsburgh printing shop until financial backing for its publishing was secured. According to the theory, Sidney Rigdon gained access to this manuscript before the closing of the print shop, which went into bankruptcy a second time in 1823. The first time was in 1818. And having met Joseph Smith in the early to mid-1820s in connection with the money-digging operation of, of uh, Joseph, collaborated with Joseph to use it as a backdrop for the Book of Mormon. In 1884, a manuscript titled Manuscript Story, Conneaut Creek, was discovered having some thematic similarities with the Book of Mormon, but very little direct overlap. Proponents argue that this isn't the same manuscript witnesses described and present evidence suggesting Rigdon and Smith's version of events uh, is doubtful. And, and I simply want to say that, there again, if the Spalding-Rigdon theory is true, there's another manuscript out there that's never been discovered that also sort of makes sense if Rigdon uh, takes the manuscript and uses it for the Book of Mormon. It makes sense that he might get rid of it, discard it, figure out a way to hide it from history, essentially. Uh, critics counter that there's no direct evidence linking Rigdon to the print shop. 
or Pittsburgh, even just Pittsburgh itself at the right time, and that witness statements regarding manuscript found are unreliable. They also question evidence of Smith and Rigdon's early acquaintance, considering it unreliable, and argue that the theory is a baseless conspiracy. Now, uh, our goal tonight, in this episode, we're going to explore the Rigdon-Spalding theory on the Book of Mormon's authorship. We're going to present the best evidence in favor of it. We seek to evaluate the evidence alongside perspectives from scholars like Dan Vogel and Bryce Blankenagel. <clears throat> I've, I've spoken to both of those as I prepared this. Um, I spoke to Bryce today. He said there's a chance he would watch this show and maybe come on at a later point to talk about it. Also, Dan Vogel is, I believe, in our audience. I haven't seen a comment from him yet, but I haven't been over there looking exactly either. And I'm anticipating, because Dan has shared a bunch of information with RFM and I, I am anticipating that Dan will leave lots of comments as we go through the show. We're going to present the evidence as, you know, what we found, what the proponents of the theory give credibility using this evidence, and then we'll try to address the evidence based on what we see is it having merit or not, or how it ties in. But we don't know everything about this theory, and I'm super excited to have Dan Vogel along for the ride uh, to help us out. Our podcast uh, is going to maintain a neutral stance. We may see more or less weight in a piece of evidence from slide to slide, but we're going to try to kind of get through this without uh, saying what we personally think, and if we do have any personal feelings, I think they're fairly neutral, um, neither promoting nor discrediting the theory, but trying to ensure an objective analysis. Most people who dive into the Spalding manuscript theory either are deep supporters of it, and they have a, an emotional tie to it being true. And the other side of it is that folks who believe the church is true have a deep emotional tie to proving that this theory isn't true. And we sort of want to walk the line of just laying out the evidence and seeing what our thoughts are on it and sharing it with you so that you can um, sh share your thoughts and, and sort of wrestle with whether this means something or not. We aim to provide a fair understanding of the evidence, allowing listeners to make informed assessments Anyone in the chat who's done any research on this theory, feel free to chime in as well. We'd love to have any input. I'm super, again, there's Dan, so he is here along for the ride, and I'm super glad he is. Uh, we're going to go into five lines of evidence. The first one, these are the kind of the five places that you need to shore up in order to show that this theory has any credibility. Number one, evidence that places Rigdon in Pittsburgh and even uh, at the print shop at the right time. Evidence that suggests Rigdon had possession of Spalding's manuscript and planned to use it. That number three, that Rigdon and Smith had met long before the 1831 meeting that LDS history tells us about that RFM just uh, shared with us. And technically just 1830 by a hair. December yeah, December. Yep. Uh, I, I grabbed this off Wikipedia and they sort of mixed me up in the sentence because it's early in 1831 when Sidney Rigdon is ordained, I think, a high priest or in the church. Yeah, that's in June. Yep. And uh, I sort of gave that year credence, but you're right. It's December of 1830. So Rigdon and Smith had met long before the 1830 meeting that the LDS history tells us about and had planned over years the creation of the Book of Mormon, capitalizing on Spalding's manuscript found. Uh, number four, that witnesses can corroborate that the Book of Mormon and manuscript found had significant overlap in their narrative theme, and characters. And lastly, any credibility issues with Rigdon's character 
as well as other facets that would be better understood and explained if the Spalding theory were true. Some of these, th as we go through the slides, some of them are sort of out of place because some of this stuff overlaps into more than just one of these lines of evidence. So please be patient with me. And it also reminds me, Dan, you corrected me yesterday where you said I had two facts wrong in the presentation. I'm going to ask that when you see those, if you'll please put those in the chat. I forgot I was going to go back and fix it and I never did. So I'm really sorry about that, but there are two factual errors and we'll correct those as we go along. Okay. Who is Solomon Spaulding? Born 1761, died 1818. He's a Revolutionary War veteran. That's sort of important. Very interesting. He's got his MA from Dartmouth, where we talked about how Hiram uh, attended there. He also was a roommate, strangely enough, he's a roommate of Ethan Smith, author of View of the Hebrews. That's a really cool connection. I don't think it has any play on the theory, but it is kind of an interesting thing to mention. 1809 to 1812, he's a resident of, I'm going to, I hope I say this right, Conneaut, Ohio. And then 1812 to 1816, he's a resident of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Those are important facts as we move through the case. All right, number one, evidence that places Rigdon in Pittsburgh and even at the print shop at the right time. So witnesses claim that Spalding believed that Rigdon took the manuscript. Now, a lot of this comes from Eber D. Howe's work where he sends uh, Philastrus Hurlbut out to collect affidavits on the Smith family and on Joseph Smith in particular. And many scholars in and out of the church, including Dan Vogel, don't give a lot of credibility to these witnesses. So I'm going to ask you to sort of see uh, these statements with a grain of salt as we go through the slideshow tonight. But I also would ask you to recognize that there is a decent number of them and they seem to be very uh, explicit of the experience they had or the things they heard or the conversations that took place. Um, so Reverend Joseph Miller, who lived in Amnity during Spalding's time there and who tended him during his last illness, I'm going to, there's a lot of material tonight. You can pause the show at any moment. If you're watching on your computer, you can make it full screen, pause the show, read these sources in full in order to try to make as good a time as we can while also giving each of these pieces of evidence the amount of time they need. We're going to focus on the things that have the red underlined sections to them because they're the parts that are pertinent to the conversation that we're having. And so Joseph Miller says, my recollection is that Spalding left a transcript of the manuscript with Patterson for publication. The print shop in Pittsburgh, the primary owner who's there throughout all the years is a man by the last name of Patterson. There are other folks who are invested with him at times. One of those is a man by the name of Lambden. His name will also come up tonight. Uh, but when it says Patterson, just note that what they're talking about is the Pittsburgh print shop office. And Patterson is the guy there and the connection that he has with Rigdon or that Lambden has with Rigdon. So my recollection is that Spalding left a transcript of the manuscript with Patterson for publication. Spalding told me that Sidney Rigdon had taken it. Spalding told me that Sidney Rigdon had taken it or was suspected of taking it. I recollect distinctly that Rigdon's name was mentioned in connection with it. Then a Reverend R. McKee says, um, there was a conversation, uh, I believe, with uh, Spalding, and he says, 
I think when he says he, he's saying Spalding, he spoke of the man Rigdon as an employee in the printing or bookbinding establishment of Patterson in Lambden in Pittsburgh. And so again, he, the claim by both of these folks is that Spalding himself communicated to them that there was an involvement with Rigdon in this escapade. So first thing I have to say is amity, that means friendship. The second thing I have to say is this. These are both from, both of these quotes are from Mormonism Unveiled, which was published in 1834. Is that correct? Say that again. Both of these affidavits are from Mormonism Unveiled, which was published in 1834. Is that correct? I believe so, uh, because they both reflect chapter four, pages 66 to 74. I think this is Mormonism Unveiled by Eber D. Howe. Yes. Okay. So it's a situation where the story is that uh, Solomon Spaulding, and you covered this in your brief synopsis, had written up his manuscript called Manuscript Found and had taken it to the print shop with the hopes of getting it published, but he had to get money first. And for some unknown reason, he leaves his manuscript at the print shop while he's scraping about to get the money, which he never gets. It's there for, I don't know, a while. Eventually, he gets it back. So any allegation about Sidney Rigdon taking it, I think is tempered by the fact that it's not stolen in the sense of what the heck happened to my manuscript, right? He, he says he got it back. It was returned to him. Yeah. And I just want to note that Dan is pointing out that uh, Miller contradicts himself. He gives a testimony uh, 10 years earlier in 1869 and suggests that Joseph Smith, by some means, had gotten possession of it, doesn't mention Rigdon at all. And so that feels like a contradiction to uh, to that perspective of, of, of Miller's in 1878 or 1879 when he gives it. Okay, this one I thought was interesting. Postmaster remembers Rigdon and his connection to the print shop. So a Mrs. William Eckebaum, and again, you can pause it and read all of it, but what what she says is that I was the daughter of a postmaster and I worked in the post office as a clerk. And then when, he, when my father passed away, my husband became the head postmaster and I worked in the office. She mentioned specific years that she was there from 1811 to 1816. She's the regular clerk in the office doing the sorting, making up the post office in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This is the post office in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh post office, during the time that Rigdon and Spalding were there. She says, I was married in 1815, and the next year my connection with the office ceased, except during the absence of my husband. I knew and distinctly remember Robert and Joseph Patterson, J. Harrison Lambden, Silas Engels, and Sidney Rigdon. I remember Reverend Mr. Spalding, but simply as one who occasionally called to inquire for letters, I remember there was an evident intimacy between Lambden and Rigdon. They very often came to the office together. I do not know what position, if any, Rigdon filled in Patterson's store or printing office, but I am well assured he was frequently, if not constantly, there for a large part of the time when I was clerk in the post office. I recall Mr. Engels saying that Rigdon was always hanging around the printing office. Now, this one, th there's a few pieces of evidence throughout this slideshow that 
seem to have a touch more weight than others. I don't know what, because uh, I was reading it, I don't know if, if Dan uh, shared some thoughts on this, but um, let's see here. If I'm being charitable, uh, I got to get rid of Miller, perhaps misremembered a story about Lambden. So this is something different. Lambden taking the manuscript home to read. Widow Spalding said that manuscript was returned before they left Pittsburgh, but he may not have, but he may have simply lied. And that's Dan Vogel being charitable, by the way. <laughs> and we should know. <laughs> yeah. Damn. There is, there is one, you know, there's a witness who says that the manuscript was brought back home. I think it's like Dan said, it's either the wife or the daughter of Spalding that the manuscript was brought back home from the printer's office and put into a chest and the manuscript story, Conneaut Creek, which was discovered in the late 1800s, I believe, 1890 something, I think, um, was discovered in Hawaii in a chest in the belongings that connected to the print shop. So there is room to see that the manuscript that was found, manuscript story, actually is the one that everybody remembered. But this piece of evidence about the postmaster's daughter and the postmaster's wife, the next postmaster, this one sort of stuck out to me a little bit uh, as having a little bit of weight. She she knows all the names of the players, first name and last name, even I think in one instance gives a middle name, J. Harrison Lambden, Silas Angles. And I sort of want to believe her. I want to believe there's a post uh, master, uh, a postal employee who is connected to the postmaster and says that she had direct interaction with Rigdon. Uh, your thoughts on this, and maybe you've been reading Dan as he's posting. I have trouble sort of reading and talking at the same time. I can't do that. But uh, any thoughts from you on this particular source, and then we'll move on to the next one. Well, the deed is supposed to have gone down in Pittsburgh at the print shop. And there's a post office in Pittsburgh as well. And all this is doing right now is showing opportunity. It's not showing anything else except that, according to these allegations, Sidney Rigdon was present at the time the manuscript was allegedly stolen from the print shop. Yeah. And that will become much more interesting when we hear what Sidney Rigdon has to say about this. Yeah. So that's the next thing, which is Rigdon responds. So when uh, Mormonism unveiled by Eber D. Howe, there's an announcement of its publication in 1833. We'll show that later. And then the book is actually published in 1834. And soon as this theory makes its way back to Sidney Rigdon, he addresses it. And I'll have to make this full screen. Uh, but here's what it says. Uh, again, talking about this is Rigdon's writing. He's the one very at the very far right bottom. You can see respectfully S. Rigdon. He's writing to uh, a Bartlett and Sullivan. He's essentially saying, "Hey, I, this theory's been brought to me. I'm going to address it." So now he says at the top please. it says Commerce, May 27th, 1839. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was right about the same year, but five years later then. Okay. So addressing a certain Solomon Spaulding, I had not the most distant knowledge of his existence. And again, I'm only reading the red underline because that to me is the most important parts. You're welcome to pause it and read it. This being the only information which I have or ever had of this said Reverend Solomon Spaulding. In other words, hearing the theory was the first time Sidney Rigdon had ever had brought to his attention the name Solomon Spaulding. He did not, he claims he did not know Solomon Spaulding 
before being this theory was brought to his attention. He says, in relation to the whole story about Spalding's writings being in the hands of Mr. Patterson, who was in Pittsburgh and who is said to have kept a printing office, in my saying that I was concerned in said office, etc., etc., is the most base of lies. Without even the shadow of truth, there was no man by the name of Patterson during my residence at Pittsburgh who had a printing office. What might have been before I lived there, I know not. Mr. Robert Patterson, I was told, had owned a printing office before I lived in that city, but had been unfortunate in business and had failed before my residence there. If I were to say that I had ever heard of the Reverend Solomon Spaulding and his hopeful wife until Dr. P. Hurlbut wrote his lie about me, I should be a liar like unto themselves. And uh, he doesn't say it as clearly as I wish he had, but he indicates that based on his understanding of how business was being done at that Patterson print shop, that it had gone out of business before he resided in the city of Pittsburgh. Again, they went bankrupt the first time in 1818. The second time is 1822 or 1823. And as Dan is pointing out in the in the show, uh, the history, the historical claim from the uh, critics of the Spalding manuscript theory is that Rigdon didn't move to Pittsburgh until 1822. So there's that. Maybe the I'll thing let here is that if, if Sidney Rigdon is really showing up in the printing office in the 1810s, if I can call it that, before 1822, the 1810s, if he really did show up there in that office, then it would be much more likely that he would have heard about Patterson and would have actually met him and known who he was. But here in his 1839 statement, Sidney Rigdon is denying even that much. He says yeah. he never knew Patterson, period, and that he was only told about him after he had moved to Pittsburgh, which was 1822. Yeah. So then Miss Mrs. Spaulding herself, she ends up remarrying pretty quickly uh, after Solomon Spaulding dies and, and then becomes uh, a Mrs. Davison. But she stated, Sidney Rigdon was at the time, 1812 to 1814, connected with the printing office of Mr. Patterson as is well known in that region, and as Rigdon himself has frequently stated. Uh, again, that's her claim. I don't. We don't see anywhere where Rigdon states that even once. Uh, here he had ample opportunity to become acquainted with Mr. Spaulding's manuscript and to copy it if he chose. It was a matter of notoriety and interest to all who were concerned with the printing establishment. Solomon Sol uh, Spaulding's daughter confirmed uh, she declared that her mother held a firm conviction that Sidney Rigdon had copied the manuscript. Uh, so there's, there's a little bit of the family chiming in about their experience. Uh, RFM, do you want to read this one? Yes, I will. And by the way, just so everybody understands, the reason that they are surmising that Sidney Rigdon helped himself to the manuscript in some way or other, even though there's apparently no evidence of its being stolen, okay, is alleged similarities between what many of the people who claim to have read manuscript found see between that manuscript and the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Fair to say? 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is Mrs. A. Treadwell, Redfield, remembered the early assertions of Spalding's widow and stated in the year 1818, I was principal of the Onondaga Valley Academy. Mrs. By the way, isn't, Onan, isn't Onondaga a similar word? Onondagas or something from the Book yeah. of Mormon? Yeah. yeah. So I just want to note that I don't, I don't know that I want to say anything more. I don't think there's a connection there, but I do think it's sort of strange that word stood out to me. Yeah, absolutely. Those Indian names, those Native American names have a long pedigree. They go back to Book of Mormon times. Yeah, totally. And some to the Book of Moses even. Okay, yeah. Mrs. Spaulding believed that Sidney Rigdon had copied the manuscript while it was in Patterson's printing office in Pittsburgh. She spoke of it with regret. I never saw her after her marriage. And then it says Mrs. Davison was married in 1820, and therefore Mrs. Redfield, so she's married four years after Reverend Spaulding passed away. And therefore, Mrs. Redfield remembered a testimony from before that date and long before Rigdon became a Mormon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So she remembers it before Mrs. Spaulding's remarried, you know, remarrying somebody. And she remembers Mrs. Spaulding talking to her about Sidney Rigdon being the possible culprit for taking the manuscript. And I guess this last line stating rather the obvious, which I'm known to do from time to time as well, which is that if she were married in 1820, remarried in 1820, and if this Mrs. Redfield never spoke to her after she got married, then any reminiscence of what it was that Mrs. Spaulding said to her would have had to have predated 1820. Right. Otherwise, she'd be Mrs. Davison. Yep. Okay. On January 20th, 1884, James Jeffrey, an acquaintance of Rigdon, wrote... I knew Sidney Rigdon. Rigdon told me several times in his conversations with me that there was in the printing office with which he was connected in Ohio, so they get the state wrong, a manuscript of the Reverend Spaulding, tracing the origin of the Indians from the lost tribes of Israel. This manuscript was in the office several years. He was familiar with it. He, Rigdon, and Joe Smith used to look over the manuscript and read it on Sundays. Rigdon and Smith took the manuscript and said, I'll print it, and went off to Palmyra, New York. So there's that one. Mm -hmm. I thought he was going to say, can you go back to that? Yeah, by all means. Because I thought he was going to say, I knew Sidney Rigdon. I worked with Sidney Rigdon. And you, Senator, are no Sidney Rigdon. <laughs> but he but he was Sidney Rigdon. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Although... Once again, we have all of these reports, uh, or at least a few reports, that people are saying, hey, Sidney told me this stuff. So I'm, I, and I'm recollecting what he told me, but there's nothing anywhere where Sidney actually says this himself, correct? Yeah. Yep. And to the audience, especially those who watch this not live, you should be keenly aware that Dan Vogel, uh, a very respected uh, scholar of Mormonism, is in our live chat, as we've already pointed out, it would be well on you to make sure that you turn that live chat on and watch it um, because we're not putting up every uh, comment by Dan and we would want you to have the full scope of information and not be presented with one side. Uh, we will at the end of this slideshow, which again may end tonight, it may end next week, but we will at the end of this slideshow put up Dan's responses to the evidence we won't spend time on it, but you'll have a chance to pause it and read those so that you can also be familiar with the counter argument. Uh, we really are trying to focus in this episode or two on the evidence that's for the theory, 
to sort of give people a feel for why this has some weight in the minds of some. By the way, it has to be noted, this is from a statement of 1884. So this is 40 years after the fact. Yes. Yeah. And most of these are late recollections uh, for what it's worth. Okay. Here is a uh, newspaper called the Cleveland Leader. This is March 14th, 1886. Uh, there's just, it's an article about Mormonism and there's a conversation being had from a C.E. Henry who is sharing uh, his personal experience in the Cleveland Leader. Uh, some of these, I could not find the original newspaper. I really try hard to find original sources so that you can see that we're not not conflating something, that something wasn't transcribed incorrectly or even made up entirely. But in this instance, I could not access any editions of the Cleveland Leader from 1886, not to mention I couldn't get this specific one. So George Wilbur. Can I mention something here? Please. Fairchild of Oberlin College, I'm guessing. This is 1886. I am going to bet that President Fairchild's lecture on the Book of Mormon had to do with the discovery of that manuscript in Hawaii, which was then sent at some point and housed currently, I believe, at Oberlin College. Yeah, and that's quite quite a cool story. Um, we won't delve into that tonight, but for them to have found it that many years later in a chest in Hawaii is pretty, pretty incredible story on its own. But it seems that this person who's writing the article is not persuaded by whatever President Fairchild had to say at his lecture. Yeah. Assuming that it was that there's no connection between the manuscript that was found and the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Um, above the red rectangle on the left column, above that, maybe 10 lines or so, it says, um, from some facts and incidents connected with the career of Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, they were in Geauga and Portage County preaching their alleged new gospel. I came to the conclusion some years ago that the Book of Mormon was the work of Sidney Rigdon with perhaps some changes or additions by Smith or others. Now to the red rectangle, George Wilbur, one of the early pioneers of Geauga County taught school in the winter following the alliance of Smith, excuse me, of Smith and Rigdon in a log schoolhouse a mile south of the center of Bainbridge. Rigdon lived in a log house about 200 yards from the schoolhouse and young Wilbur, who had heard Rigdon preach before his alliance with Smith, often called on him during the noon hour of recess and sometimes in the evening. I'll point this out later too. But when they mentioned Bainbridge, Ohio, and I heard Bainbridge, my brain automatically went to Bainbridge where Josiah Stoll lives. Um, I was on the phone with you and I had that connection and you right away said, isn't the Josiah Stoll Bainbridge in New York? And of course that is correct. Uh, South Bainbridge where Josiah Stoll resided is in New York. So as we're reading this, you should not confuse any mention here or forward about Bainbridge being the location of where Josiah Stoll was. We can provide uh, a connection in geography, and we'll get to that, but not Bainbridge. Rigdon lived in a log house uh, 200 yards away from the schoolhouse. Wilbur had heard Rigdon preach before his alliance with Smith, often called him during the noon hour of recess. Um, maybe can you pull that comment down for just a second? Sorry. And sometimes in the evening. Okay. For a year or more before the advent of Smith, they saw that Rigdon was bent on devising some new dogma, in short, to start a new church or sect that he could call 
his own or whose leadership he would share with only a few. Rigdon did not preach that winter. Again, I'm just reading the red sections. Rigdon did not preach that winter, but was almost constantly engaged upon a manuscript that he was writing or revising. Wilbur noticed that towards the close of the term, that there was much more of it than there was the first time he saw it. Rigdon had before that time been free and communicative, uh, communicative, especially upon the religious topics. He now appeared reserved and at times reticent. Whenever any reference about his manuscript, he seemed disposed to parry inquiry by some general explanation that he was making notes or preparing some papers to throw light upon some portions of the gospel. The following spring, Smith appeared, and he and Rigdon went off together and were gone some months. It was reported that they had gone to Pittsburgh, but whether true or not, no one could say. It was generally believed, however, that Smith at least visited western New York before either returned to Ohio. Soon after their return, the Book of Mormon was announced. Smith was mysterious and silent, assuming familiarity with the supernatural. Uh, And then the next sentence isn't part of that. Uh, So here you have an article from 1886 where sort of this same story is sort of being uh, bantered, what's the... Bandied about, yeah. And and here it is again. Again, you can decide what kind of credibility to give to any of these. We just want to note how many of them there are, and there will be moments where we maybe share our two cents on the weight of it. RFM, any thoughts on this newspaper article? Does Wilbur ever leave a statement? Um, I don't know that. So as we get further in, Wilbur doesn't stand out to me as one of the names of the witnesses that we have sources for. Yeah, this is a third-hand reminiscence Mm -hmm. uh, from somebody who claims to have heard this from George Wilbur, who was apparently a very young man and going to school at the relevant time period, this being published in 1886. Um, Okay, yeah. So what we're doing, everybody, so you know, we're going over the pieces of evidence some are better than others. This, I think, is not particularly probative. For example, the one at the top in the middle, for a year or more before the advent of Smith, they saw that Rigdon was bent on devising some new dogma, in short, to start a new church or sect that he could call his own or whose leadership he would share with only a few. That's completely inadmissible. There's no, yeah, who said it? You know, what did what did Rigdon say that made them think this? And where are your witnesses? So, I know it's 1886. I know he's writing a news article, but still, still, he's trying to put forth his position that the Sidney Rigdon Solomon Spaulding theory is true behind the Book of Mormon. And I'm just not seeing a lot of facts in this article. Yep. And then I didn't quite say it, but the Bainbridge that's mentioned in these sources is Bainbridge, Ohio, not South Bainbridge, New York. All right. The Cleveland leader, Morning Herald. Uh, Again, I want to go into great detail. But this was what we just read. Rigdon first met uh, Joseph Smith in Geauga County. That's the claim. Rigdon did not preach that winter, but was almost constantly engaged upon a manuscript that he was writing or revising. The following spring, Smith appeared, and he and Rigdon went off together and were gone for months. I I don't know this for sure, but I did read in one place, somebody had done the research of when we knew Joseph Smith had left his home and been out of town, and they had done the research on when Sidney Rigdon had left home and been out of town, and there was some overlap according to that. I don't have that as part of this slideshow, 
but just to note that maybe there's still some research to be done or explored in terms of whether these two were gone sort of at the same moments uh, and where they had gone to, that might help fill in some voids in the story. Uh, and that Rigdon believed that his own attainments would put him at the head of a new church. Again, as RFM points out, this is uh, not a firsthand witness and hence, uh, which I very much appreciate and want throughout the slideshow, but your expertise in the legal field, uh, knowing sort of what evidence would hold, hold up and what evidence wouldn't and what a jury or a judge would think about any pieces of these as being admissible. So I appreciate that too. And please note the, thank you. And please note the remarkable, if not unique claim that Joseph Smith showed up in Ohio before the book of Mormon was published. Yeah. Yep. Okay. This is one of the things that gets really interesting. Dan Vogel acknowledges that according to the critics of this theory, Sidney Rigdon doesn't show up in Pittsburgh until 1822. Rigdon himself says, I wasn't in Pittsburgh until after Patterson's print shop had uh, gone bankrupt and closed down. But what we find is that, and I'm going to skip ahead here for a second, then I'll go back. What we find, though, is that there are numerous newspapers from 1811 through 1816 uh, or so, where Solomon Spaulding is mentioned in the newspaper as having unclaimed letters. We also find that Sidney Rigdon also has unclaimed letters in the Pittsburgh post office. And in one particular instance, on June 30th, 1816, both Rigdon and Spaulding are mentioned. In the middle there is a transcription of it, but we want to get to the original sources. So both this image here on the left, and we'll, we'll spend a moment talking about each, and this green image now on the screen, these are both part of the exact same newspaper. For whatever reason, though, somebody did not go through the trouble to get one image. We have two different people collecting an image of it. But again, I don't think anybody disputes this. Dan, please chime in. I think folks would appreciate hearing from you that that what your feelings are about Rigdon uh, and Solomon Spaulding actually both being in the uh, 1816 newspaper. But in this 1816 newspaper of the Commonwealth, June 30th, there is an announcement, and this actually might be July 7th because the, the list I think was put together a week earlier. But in the particular newspaper, there's a list of all the people in town who have unclaimed letters at the post office, and Solomon Spaulding and Sidney Rigdon both have a unclaimed letter at the post office in the same edition of the newspaper, and it occurs in 1816, which if if we assume, if we assume that that means Rigdon lived in Pittsburgh, and I don't think we have to, but if we assume that means Rigdon lived in Pittsburgh, it means he lived there earlier than, than the evidence uh, had been understood to have him moving to Pittsburgh until we add this in and, and deal with it. And so I think that's interesting. Your thoughts on Rigdon showing up in a newspaper in 1816 in Pittsburgh when he's not supposed to live here until 1822. Right. The question is the postal system at the time 
And this is not a time when you could take your letters and go out to your post office box and stick them in with a stamp on it and throw the red flag up. Nor could you receive mail necessarily in so handy a way. But it was quite common for people to go to the post office to post their mail and also to receive mail that they had incoming for them. So it would make sense that at some point, Sidney Rigdon, assuming it's the same Sidney Rigdon, uh, used the post office in Pittsburgh for his mail, to receive mail. Yes. As far as I know, Rigdon lives about 30 miles outside of Pittsburgh. I don't know what the postal system looked like in 1816, but it's very feasible that the Pittsburgh post office is the closest place for him to go to get his mail. Um, it's a long way to go in 1816 to grab some letters, but also people at one time or another do need to make a trip into town. Okay. Um, and we should note that Rigdon does show up in other instances. There's twice in 1818, both in August and in October, where Rigdon shows up again, having unclaimed letters long before he's supposed to have moved there in 1822. Can I add something else we hadn't talked about, Bill? Please. The fact that Rigdon's name shows up more than once as having uncollected mail would suggest that he does not live in Pittsburgh. Otherwise, he would be much more available and on the scene to go get his mail more regularly. Other than Solomon Spaulding's name shows up even more often, and he's living in Pittsburgh at the time. Okay. So I hear you, mm -hmm. uh, but I think in these instances, people just didn't get to the post office very often. So, all right. Um some, so Dan says there's a list of post offices, sometimes only one per county. Hey, and Dan, if you know the answer to this, this would be great. Is there Was there any post office that was closer than Pittsburgh to where Sidney Rigdon did live at this time period in 1816 and 1818? Yeah. That's one it's, thing we, we weren't able to find out. Yep. All right. So that's the first line of thinking is Rigdon in Pittsburgh and at least by the post office, he's there. And according to multiple witnesses, he is interacting with Patterson or Lambden at the Pittsburgh print shop. But again, there are also some credibility issues with some of those statements. And underscoring for purposes of clarity, the print shop in Pittsburgh is completely different from the post office in Pittsburgh. Yes. We can show that Rigdon had mail in Pittsburgh. That's for certain in 1816. We don't have any definitive evidence that he associated with the print shop other than the late reminiscence that are at times contradicted by the witnesses. All right, so number two line of evidence, evidence that suggests Rigdon had possession of Spalding's manuscript and made use of it. So the Reverend Robert Patterson uh, is the printer's son. So this is a third-hand account. He goes out and collects witness statements from various people who were connected to this story. This very first source looks like it's coming from Reverend John Winter, but you'll find out in the next slide that it's actually a second-hand statement of Winter's. Reverend John Winter was one of the early ministers of the Baptist Church, laboring in Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Ohio. 
during a portion of the time when Sidney Rigdon was pastor of the First Baptist Church in Pittsburgh. He was well acquainted with Rigdon. One occasion during this period, 1822 to 1823, Dr. Winter was in Rigdon's study when the latter took from his desk a large manuscript and said in substance, a Presbyterian minister Spalding, so this is Rigdon allegedly saying this, a Presbyterian minister Spalding, whose health had failed, brought this to the printer to see if it would pay to publish it. It's a romance of the Bible. And so Dr. Winter gets that statement allegedly from uh, from Rigdon, and then it's another person who overheard that conversation later with when Dr. Winter retells it, and then is telling essentially Reverend Robert Patterson, who is the Patterson from the print shop. It's his son. Uh, and I can see that, you know, you, you find out that your dad was involved in this cool historical story and you take an interest in it and you go to try to sort things out yourself. Um, I will say about that comment, it seems almost too good to be true. Yeah. Because it covers all the bases so nicely in just a couple of sentences. It's a late recollection. And I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there that if a person really, really hates the Mormons and doesn't like the Book of Mormon and considers it a gross imposition on the public and a blasphemy to Bible believers everywhere, right? Then they are going to remember things. Then they're going to be more likely to remember things that are going to corroborate that viewpoint. Yeah, and of all the people who aren't happy with Mormonism, you could start with the assumption that any minister who's not converted to Mormonism is not happy with Mormonism. Yes, two reverends involved here. Yes. All right, so uh, the Reverend A.J. Bonsall, he's the one who shares Dr. Winter's uh, thoughts, but he says, I repeatedly heard Dr. Winter say that Rigdon had shown him the Spalding manuscript romance, purporting it to be the history of the American Indians, which manuscript he had received from the printers. I also want to say here, the manuscript story found in Hawaii in the late 1800s is the, the way the papers are bound together is different than the witnesses remembering sort of this loose collection of transcript pages. And uh, so often when you delve into the Spalding Rigdon theory, what you find is that one of the things the proponents of the theory point out is that most of the witnesses refer to the manuscript, which would sort of be like loose fool's cap paper. And what was found in Hawaii was a, like a bound sort of, I don't want to say book, but it was like a bound set of pages that would maybe have been, maybe have been described different by the witnesses. Uh, so there's that. It was the, and I'm going back to the quote here, it was the impression of these three witnesses, and we shared the one, Dr. Winter, now we got Reverend Bonsall, we'll get the third here in a minute, had himself committed his recollections to of his above-mentioned interview with Rigdon to writing. Winter's evidence thus attested is of itself sufficient to establish, and this is somebody else imposing here. <laughs> the right? certainty. Yeah, yeah. Winter's evidence thus attested is of, is of itself sufficient to establish the certainty that Rigdon in 1822, 1823, a possession of Spalding's manuscript, but that in a courtroom would be called what, RFM? Uh, BS. Well, no. I would say leading the witness. <laughs> what it is, is it's obvious that this person is arguing for the Solomon Spalding theory because having a third head, re third hand recollection very, very late about what Dr. Winter 
told Reverend A.J. Bonsall, who told Reverend Robert Patterson Jr., who put it in his book, that that is all true and that it establishes with certainty anything is, I think it's overstating the evidence. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, another mention of this, and I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but the book that really delves into this in a really significant way is who really wrote the Book of Mormon, the Spalding Enigma. I want to just note that Dr. Walter Martin helped help promote this project, mm. and Wayne, yeah, and Wayne Cowdery, mm -hmm. the alleged relative of Oliver Cowdery, who turns out to not be a relative of Oliver Cowdery. He was a direct descendant. Yes, in spite but, of the name spelling difference. Yes. And in spite of the fact that uh, Oliver Cowdery has no descendants that bear his last name. He had only girls. Correct. To maturity. Correct. I think that's true. 100%. So there is a lot of information out there that criticizes Dr. Walter Martin and, Doc, and, and Mr. Wayne Cowdery as deeply deceptive antagonist or anti-Mormons. And I simply want to note that there is, having read a bunch on those guys, there is some truth to at times they had embellished or overstated their case. And uh, I don't know the truthfulness of any statement, but I'm simply presenting the evidence as we discover it. Uh, it does say that Dr. Winter is alleged to have told the family and friends while boarding in the Rigdon home that he, he had actually seen Spalding's manuscript in Rigdon's hand and heard Rigdon admit where he obtained it. That's the very testimony we just read two slides earlier. Um, again, Dr. Robert Patterson collecting statements, Mrs. Mary W. Irvine, a daughter of Dr. Winter writes from Sharon, Pennsylvania, not to be confused with Sharon, Vermont, April 5th, 1881. I have frequently heard my father speak of Rigdon having Spalding's manuscript and that he had gotten it from the printers, read it as a curiosity as such. He showed it to father and that at the time Rigdon had no intention of making use of that, he afterwards did, for Father always said Rigdon helped Smith in his scheme, says BG, but it's got to be by, by revising and making the Mormon Bible out of Reverend Spaulding's manuscript. And so there's another source. January 20th, 1844, James Jeffrey, a friend of Rigdon, and I don't know if that's a friend according to James Jeffrey a friend according to historians, I don't know, but someone claims that Jeffrey's a friend of Rigdon, that he heard Rigdon say that Smith used a Spalding manuscript to fabricate the Book of Mormon in 1844. Which means he heard Rigdon say in 1844 that Smith used a Spalding manuscript to fabricate the Book of Mormon. Yeah. He says, I knew Sidney Rigdon. Rigdon told me several times in his conversations with me that there was a printing office which he was connected he was connected in Ohio again wrong state a manuscript of the reverend spalding tracing the origin of the indians from the lost tribes of israel and we should be clear while early mormon theology certainly deals with the lost tribes of israel the book of mormon doesn't tackle that topic if i'm not mistaken this manuscript was in the office several years he was familiar with it spalding wanted it published but had not the means to pay for printing. He, Rigdon, and Joe Smith used to look over the manuscript and read it on Sundays. Rigdon said Smith took the manuscript, I'll print it, and went off to Palmyra, New York. This sounds very similar, but I don't think exact to the one we read earlier. 
It's I could not be wrong. exact, but it's the same person, James Jeffrey, I think. Yeah. And now we have Joseph Smith not only over there on one occasion in Ohio prior to the Book of Mormon, he's over there all the time and they are reading it. He and Sidney are reading the manuscript on Sundays, plural. Yeah. And and uh, Dan is pointing out the obvious question, why would Sidney Rigdon show the manuscript that he planned to, uh, that he planned to uh, plagiarize? Because it, he hadn't it, planned to plagiarize it yet. Try and say yeah. that three times fast. Yeah. <laughs> it was right. just a curiosity, right? Yeah. I think that's what she said. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mrs. Amos Dunlap of Warren, Ohio, reported on a childhood visit to Rigdon's family. During my visit, Mr. Rigdon went to his bedroom and took from a trunk, which he kept locked, a certain manuscript. This will be a great thing someday, Rigdon reported. But that's it. So whatever was in the trunk, even if this story's true, would it be enough to incriminate Rigdon for taking the Spalding manuscript? The Whatever he took from the trunk and said would be a great thing someday could be any writing. Um, so probably this wouldn't hold up well in court either. This will be a great thing someday. Oh, yeah. I like the part in the middle about his wife at that moment came into the room and exclaimed, what, you're studying that thing again? Or something to that effect. She then added, I mean to burn that paper. Yeah. So I didn't know Sidney Rigdon was married to Lucy Harris. Yeah, there's a lot of people in Mormonism willing to burn things, aren't there? Okay. The Millennial Harbinger. Did I yes. say that right? Okay. Very good. Great. Uh, you were reporting to me that a lot of people get that wrong, and I pronounce a lot of things wrong. I hear people say Harbinger sometimes, yeah, and yeah. it makes me cringe. Yeah, and I'm probably guilty of that at least once in the past of doing Having that. said that, I hope I'm right. I'm sure you are. You generally get these things correct. So Generally, not yeah. always. Uh, all right. So here in uh, January 1844, this says, Dear Brother Scott, I, I'm missing the name off the bottom. I apologize for that. Oh, this might be Adamson Bentley. Bentley. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Bentley. So I know that Sidney Rigdon told me there was a book coming out, the manuscript of which had been found engraved on gold plates as much as two years before the Book of Mormon made its appearance in this country or had been heard of by me. So he's saying that prior to uh, the word of the Book of Mormon sort of getting around after it being published, that Rigdon already knew two years earlier, which would contradict Rigdon's own statement that he didn't know anything about any of this stuff until uh, the missionaries, including Parley Pratt, had visited him in regards to Mormonism or Joseph Smith. Uh, but this gentleman says that he knew Rigdon, uh, that Rigdon had told him that the Book of Mormon essentially was coming forward two years before it actually did. And so there's that. And then we've got the Conneaut Witnesses. These, uh, again, the oh, manuscript. By the way, on that last please. one, on that mm -hmm. last one, 1844. So we are getting closer in time. Yeah, and I don't, yes. Discussions being reported. Yes, I don't have these in chronological order at all. It was hard enough to sort of split them out into the five lines of evidence. But yes, this one is not as late of a remembrance as others. Um, the Conneaut Witnesses when manuscript story is discovered in Hawaii, I think it's also called a manuscript story in Pontiac Creek. 
No, Manuscript Found is the one that's maybe still missing. Maybe, maybe not. Doesn't exist. Oh, that's the one that has never been found. Yes, the one found in Hawaii was titled Manuscript Story, right. Yeah, that's and what we call think, gaping hole, but go ahead. Yes, and the secondary name of it was Conneaut Creek. It's very possible that that's the document that these witnesses remembered, but it should at least be noted that in 1832, Mormon elders Orson Hyde and Samuel H. Smith de delivered a sermon on the Book of Mormon at the schoolhouse in Salem, Conneaut, Ohio. Nehemiah King, an old friend of Solomon Spaulding, recognized it as Spaulding's work. Friends and relatives of Spaulding, John Spaulding, Martha Spaulding, Henry Lake, John Miller, Aaron Wright, Oliver Smith, Nahum. Oh my goodness, if that's got the right consonants, that's a that's a bullseye, my friend. Nahum, Nahum. Nahum Howard, Artemis Cunningham. By the way, that's how easy it is to get in NHM and in any given moment. So agreed with King, these eight people referred to as the Conneaut Witnesses later signed affidavits to this that effect. These affidavits were collected by Dr. Philastrius, Philastrius Hurlbut and published in Mormonism Unveiled in 1834 by Eber D. Howe. I want to note, as Dan says, there is lots of credibility issues with these witnesses, but I think it's also important to note that based on my research, it seems like it was even before Hurlbut collects the affidavits that these people are already stirring about believing the Book of Mormon to be the manuscript of their friend Solomon Spaulding. In other words, it's not Philastrus Hurlbut who's instigating this necessarily, that at least in this instance and in one more we'll get to, that maybe these witnesses were already perceiving that the Book of Mormon was the manuscript of their old deceased friend, Solomon Spaulding, before Hurlbut antagonizes them to put their testimony into, uh, into writing. Does that make sense, RFM? Yes. They're claiming something happened before um, Philastus Hurlbut sends out Eber D. Howe to them. I think the question is whether they ever said anything about it before that happened, before Eber D. Howe. In other words, Howe comes out, he's collecting affidavits. Oh, I remember this. And of course, having eight people remember it is more than one. It's more than two. It's more than a lot of things, including seven. It's eight witnesses saying the same thing. But they're saying this happened earlier, right? So the question is that I have first off is, did they say anything before the affidavits were collected? And I've got a comment. We've got eight witnesses that stands for something. And all of them apparently are at least claiming to be direct witnesses. Not repeating something that someone else said. Yeah. Now, some of it is certainly um, subjective in the sense of it would require them to remember what was in the manuscript. It would also require them to know what's in the Book of Mormon. And I'm not sure why they would be so familiar with the Book of Mormon if they were not members of the church. Yeah, in all honesty, very few members of the church back then were reading the Book of Mormon. Uh, so I just want to note the statement in the very bottom left is one that I found that sort of captures the point I tried to make. Uh, I don't know absolutely for sure that this is true, only that this is what was said, and I saw this sort of 
uh, reasoning in other places. So Dan's welcome to challenge it. Others are welcome to challenge it, but it seems like they were stirring before Hurlbut got there. Again, the date at the top is 14, 15, February, 1832. As I understand it, when the Mormon elders showed up in 1832, uh, they were already talking to the missionaries long before the 1833 or 1834 publishing of Mormonism Unveiled. They were communicating uh, out loud that that this seemed to have a resemblance to Solomon Spaulding's work. So the thing at the bottom, statements made by Spaulding's wife and daughter and Abner Jackson, who related that prior to Hurlbut's arrival at Conneaut, a number of people, including John Spaulding, Henry Lake, Aaron Wright, recognized Spaulding's story in the Book of Mormon when it was read at a public meeting. Hence, Hurlbut was not planting a new idea, excuse me, in the minds of these people. So at this public meeting, they read the entire Book of Mormon? No, it sounds like they read enough of it, though, that that the witnesses saw overlap to what they remembered from Spaulding's work. Well, let me just say a couple things. First off, earlier you talked about the missionaries arriving in Ohio in 1832. It's actually 1830. So just correcting that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is this. I mean, look, uh, if someone were to read the Book of Mormon after having read View of the Hebrews, you could say the same thing because it's subjective. You could say, hey, this is obviously the same story, but it really isn't exactly the same story. It's with permutations. It's based upon a common theme that was known and believed by almost everybody back then about the Hebrew ancestry of the Native Americans. And they had to come over here somehow at some point in the distant past. So I wish that they would have told us what it was about the Book of Mormon that matched up with their recollection of the Spalding manuscript, which nobody has anymore to look at and compare, unless it's that one that was found in Hawaii. But if it is, then this whole theory falls apart. Correct. Th this theory only works if there is a yet-to-still-be-discovered manuscript that is not the one found in Hawaii. Um, okay, so it's narrative. By the way, these witnesses say that the narrative followed the lines of Spalding's novel. The plot was the same. The names of the characters were the same. The exact language was in many instances. By the way, if you ever read The Late War, you will find also the exact language of the Book of Mormon uh, in many instances. Um, also, to some extent, view of the Hebrews, though I think to maybe a lesser extent, although the thematic material might have more overlap. And in Solomon Spaulding's manuscript story, there is also agreement that there is some language use that's similar. Not that the themes are similar per se, although close. Not that the character names or geographic places are the same. They're not. But that in manuscript story, the language of that day from, from, from the Book of Mormon's uh, word structure, sentence structure, vernacular, vocabulary there's a lot of the same sort of sentence structure found in these other writings that we're mentioning. And so you can see why these witnesses might just by hearing, and it came to pass four or five times might sense that this is something similar or maybe even the same as their old deceased friends writings. And so as RFM's pointing out, maybe a touch of, you know, a grain of salt as we sort of consider the credibility of these. And then I just want to know uh, my father, John Miller, 
I have often heard him tell about the Nephites and Zarahemlites. Before the Book of Mormon was published, I well remember D.P. Hurlbut coming to our house about 50 years ago and his telling Father that he was taking evidence to expose Mormonism and hearing him read from the Book of Mormon. Frequently, Father would request Hurlbut to stop reading and would state what followed, and Hurlbut would say that it was so in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, so it's sort of eye roll. totally, but it sort of sounds like when the Book of Mormon is being translated and you know, stop and okay, that's correct. And uh, frequently, Father would request Hurlbut, okay, and I've got that part already. And Hurlbut would say that it was so in the Book of Mormon, he expressed great surprise that Father remembered so much of it. Father, yeah, told I'm expressing him, great surprise too. Yeah, uh, Father told him that manuscript found, and again, all of these witnesses insist that that original manuscript was titled Manuscript Found. The one found in Hawaii, which sometimes is referred to as manuscript found, is called manuscript story. Uh, and so I think that's at least worthy of note. Can I underscore the fact Please. that if I've got my chronology right, these people who claim to remember what was written in the manuscript are going off at least 20 years old in their recollections. Yeah, and in this instance, it's the son remembering the visit of Hurlbut to his dad and he's not putting this in writing until Springfield, Pennsylvania, December 9th, 1884. Yeah. So in other words, if this manuscript, uh, which apparently did exist of some sort that uh, Solon Spalding had written, he dies in 1816, right? He writes this prior to that. And so I'm not aware of anybody talking about reading it after he died. Do you know about that? Reading manuscripts found after he died? Yes. N no. Okay, so this is up here, 1832, 1833, and the Mormons are in Ohio. So any recollection of these people, even at that point, is 20 years old, is what was in the manuscript. And I'm just guessing it wasn't really that riveting. I don't know. Maybe they thought it was great. Maybe they actually committed large segments to memory. And this guy memorized the whole thing so well that if you read part of the Book of Mormon, he could tell you what comes immediately after. But yeah. that part, I have trouble believing. Yeah. And some people have memory that is that good. Some people can recall what the weather was on July 12th of, you know, whatever year, and they can tell you it was rainy that day because their brain is an anomaly to the rest of us. Yeah. But anomaly would be the key word. By yeah. the way, the 1884 date, as you mentioned, if this indeed were made in 1884, then it's, what is it, 70, 70 years after they would have read it in the manuscript? Or at yeah. least their recounting of what Father said in his meeting with Hurlbut, yeah. Okay, that's a long time. It is. It's a long time. Okay, Pittsburgh Telegraph, uh, February 6th, 1879. I'm going to make this large again. Uh, so Joseph Miller, veteran of the War of 1812, he is 88 years old at the time of this 1879 newspaper article. Says Mr. S. I yeah, the very bottom left. He would be 88 years old if he had lived to the printing of this, but he had done an interview a few days earlier, found him well and hearty, barring some muscular disability, and ready to crack a joke or fling a repartee as ever. He said if he lived till today, February 1st, he would be 88 years old. 
Okay, so, so he would have been 20 at the time in 1812, right? Yeah, something like that. Correct. Uh, I, I don't. I didn't do the math, but certainly something really close to that. Um, Mr. S. So I assume Mr. Spalding was poor but honest. I endorsed him twice to borrow money. His house was a place of common uh, resort, especially in the evening. I was prosecuting my trade carpenter in the village and frequented his house. Mr. S. seemed to take delight in reading from his manuscript written on fool's cap. So there's another mention of how it would have been uh, kept. For the entertainment of his frequent visitors, heard him read most, if not all, and had frequent conversations with him about it. I think this is important because it establishes that Solomon Spaulding may have, in fact, read his manuscript to a lot of people, had guests at the home, and read it to them. Um, Vogel's just noting this is a repeat. Um, 1879 statement contradicts his 1869 statement. Mr. S. told me that Sidney Rigdon had taken it, or he was suspicioned for it. Recollect distinctly that Rigdon's name was used in that connection. So there's that. <clears throat> okay. Um, I got to figure out here what's going on. One preacher he spoke with concerning the plates in their story was Reverend Adamson Bentley. And again, I apologize, Dan, if there is duplicates because trying to gather all the sources, I probably spent time in at least a hundred places online collecting all of this. And I very well may have duplicated some of it. Um, History has preserved for us, fortunately, both Reverend Bentley and Reverend Campbell's statements. Bentley said, you request that I should give you all the information I am in possession of respecting Mormonism. I know that Sidney Rigdon told me there was a book coming out, the manuscript of which had been found in Goat So I think we've read this one already. This is a duplicate. And then Campbell says uh, he placed it in the summer of 1820. I'm sorry. Addison Bentley placed it in the summer of 1827. Campbell placed it in the summer of 1826. That was the only thing the two of them claimed to disagree on. He said Rigdon at the same time observing that in the plates dug up in New York, there was an account not only of the aborigines of this country, but also it was stated that the Christian religion had been preached in this country during the first century. And just as we were preaching it in the Western Reserve. Any, uh, anything from you there? Otherwise, I'll just I'll go on to this one. But Yeah, the active question I have in my mind as I'm looking at this evidence is this. Are these facts that are being recollected to support the theory? Or is this a theory that is casting about for facts to support it and people are supplying them? Right. In other words, if indeed there was a manuscript and it was the manuscript that was discovered, which has general broad similarities with the Book of Mormon. You got Romans being blown off course by a storm and landing in the Americas. Okay. And I think there's something about plates in a box or something or manuscript in a, a stone box. Um, you've got all these, uh, this kind of thing. I think it's quite possible people could look at that and say, hey, that's the same story that Solomon Spaulding wrote. And now once you've got to that point, now you just got to connect the dots. And some of these sound like people who are supplying information in order to fill a gap that's necessary for the theory to stand up. I can't say that. That's an open question in my mind. I'm just saying that's a question I have as I'm looking at these. Are these facts supporting a theory or is this a theory in search of facts? Yeah, and I just wanted to put this up 
just as an example of how easy it might be if if somebody came to me 20 years later and I just, my memory was a little faulty, which all of ours generally is. Um, I'm going to put up, for instance, the late war and show, uh, let me make this just a little bigger here. I mean, look how this reads. Now it came to pass in the 1812th year of the Christian era and in the 36th year of the people of the provinces of Colombia had declared themselves free and independent nation that in the sixth month of the same year on the first day of the month, the chief governor, I bet that sentence almost exactly is in the Book of Mormon, um, day of the month, the chief governor whom the people had chosen to rule over the land of Colombia. And then, you know, in, in the name of the city where the people gathered together was after the name of the chief captain of the land of Colombia. Again, the, the specific pronouns are different. The, the, the names of people and geographic locations are different. But the writing style, the sentence structure, the words that are being used outside of those specific names are extremely similar to the Book of Mormon. And you would find that over and over, in as much as they hearkened not unto the voice of moderation. Again, a Book of Mormon almost certainly says, in as much as they hearken not unto the voice of the Lord. Um, the sentence structure of the late war is very similar. If I had read this once or had it read to me an evening or two at someone's house, and then 20 years later had heard the Book of Mormon, I could see where I might sense that this is one in the same book, for instance. That's how easy I think it is. And so you can't give a ton of weight to people claiming decades later that they were, that this is the same material they read decades ago. So there's that. All right, let me pull that back off. Because you'll find faithful members at that late date remembering things very favorable to Joseph Smith and to Mormonism. Yeah. By the way, the late war, it just does that page after page after page. If you just change the proper nouns, you have almost the exact same writing style of the Book of Mormon. All right, um, we've got this from Campbell, so let's go to the next one. I, I only put this in because Solomon Spaulding was a Revolutionary War veteran, and there is a lot of the thematic material and battle, the ways in which battles take place in the Book of Mormon that are very similar to the way the American Revolution was fought and so there are lots of people who see similarities in that. Um, and then this is just a list. You can pause it and read it, but these are essentially what the proponent of the theory says are the historical evidence in conclusion to that last section, the historical evidence connecting Rigdon to Spalding and to the fabrication of the Book of Mormon. But essentially we went over each of those. And so now we are to uh, section number three. We'll get a little ways into this one and we'll probably stop. Uh, but this to me is the most important section, I think, because you, this whole theory doesn't work as well if you can't put Smith and Rigdon together. So number three, that Rigdon and Smith had met long before the, again, 1830, December 1830, meeting that history tells us about and had planned over years the creation of the Book of Mormon, capitalizing on Spalding's manuscript found. Up until, I want to say at least somewhat recently, our understanding as uh, researchers or historians looking at things deep in Mormonism, it was our understanding that the very first time anybody had heard the theory that Joseph or that uh, that the Book of Mormon came forth because 
Rigdon stole a manuscript from Solomon Spaulding, and him and Joseph uh, connived behind the scenes to uh, publish that book under the name The Book of Mormon with perhaps added material, was 1833, when uh, in the Wayne Sentinel, and I'm sure in other places, but at least in the Wayne Sentinel, uh, there is an announcement of this book that's about to come forth, and here's what it says, at least in, in the part of this thing that's underlined. The original manuscript of the book was written some 30 years since by a respectable clergyman now deceased whose name we are not permitted to give, but that would be Spalding. It was designed to be published as a romance, but the author died soon after it was written, and hence the plan failed. By the way, I, I would say there's maybe they mean romance in a different way, but to me, there's practically nothing about the Book of Mormon that would be described as a romance. Uh, maybe, do you know off him that if that word is used differently back in the 1800s in terms of oh, material? Yeah, a romance is just sort of an adventure. Gotcha. Yeah. In that so, case, maybe it works. Romantic. <clears throat> Sometimes they'll say how romantic, but romantic doesn't necessarily mean people falling in love with each other. It doesn't have to be a Hallmark movie. Yeah. Romance can be full of adventure and sword play and danger and things like that gotcha but, and the book of mormon's plenty of that yeah and you notice at the bottom where they got the information yeah from dr hurlbert it says hurlbert there but hurlbert yes uh it says the pretended religious character of the work has been super added by some more modern hand believed to be notorious rigged and there's lots of statements that say you know spalding had his story rigdon took it added the religious uh, material to it and then published it with Joseph Smith as the Book of Mormon. But yes, this comes from Hurlbut. And I just want to note too that Harmony, Pennsylvania is only 28 miles away from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's a nine hour walk, obviously much faster if by horse uh, horseback or by carriage. Uh, it wouldn't be impossible for Joseph Smith to be in the general region of Sidney Rigdon. I simply want to note that, not that we ever can definitively place them there. Um, there is a Adamson Bentley we already read. There's a Dr. Storm Rasa in the early part of 1830. He remarked to me that it was time, Rigdon, remarked to me that it was time for a new religion to spring up. It would not be long before something would make its appearance. Reuben P. Harmon, I was personally acquainted with Rigdon. I have heard Rigdon several times say in his sermons that long before the Indian mounds and forts about there would uh, about there would all be explained. John Rudolph, along with his brother, heard Rigdon's sermons consistently for two years before Rigdon joined the Mormon church. And he said for two years before the Mor Book of Mormon appeared, Rigdon's sermons were full of declarations and prophecies that the age of miracles would be restored and more complete revelations than those in the Bible would be given. When the Book of Mormon appeared, all who heard him were satisfied that he referred to it. So we get more of people claiming that they knew Rigdon was working with something that seems similar to the Book of Mormon long before he officially gets connected up with Joseph Smith. We're getting some comments about Harmony, Pennsylvania. Oh, is that the wrong Harmony? I'm so sorry. That's what two people are saying. It says Harmony, Pennsylvania. They're Harmony, saying Harmony Township. Township is different oh. than Harmony, Pennsylvania. I appreciate that. I did not catch that. So by the thank way, that's you very my much. Fault. That's no, no, my no. fault. Not at all. And by the way, would who Ron and others who are pointing that out, would you let us know how far away it is just so that folks will have that information? 
how far was Joseph Smith in the Hale family, for instance, from, uh, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? That would be great. This one I thought was really interesting. Again, uh, critics of the theory claim that the theory really didn't become public until Hurlbut's book got published or at least announced in 1833. But in, and I'm going to say recent, but it may even be a decade or two, in recent years, another source has been discovered. Um, I'm going to skip past this because we were just read that one. Oh, by the way, if I can yes. just comment on that bottom right one. Please. For two years before the Book of Mormon appeared, Rigdon's sermons were full of declarations and prophecies that the age of miracles would be restored and more complete revelations than those in the Bible would be given. Lots of people were preaching the same thing. But it's because it was Sidney Rigdon that when the Book of Mormon comes forth, then they go, ah, well, that's what he must have been talking about. He knew about it even then. It's a conclusion that's not necessarily supported by the evidence. Yeah, and it, and it may even be more reasonable instead of saying that the carts before the horse to recognize that these also work in reverse. In other words, if Rigdon is deeply interested in a restoration of sorts, it also explains why he's one of the very few ministers who would take interest in Mormonism's message when it comes along because it matches much of what he sort of expects needs to happen before Christ can come again. All right, next. This one is another one that I th I found very interesting. This was the Philadelphia album. This is September 17th, 1831. Um, I circled parts of the conversation there in red, but off to the right, I made the text uh, bigger and more uh, with more context around it. But he, uh, there's an unknown person who's being interviewed in this article two years before, two and a half years before the announcement, not, not quite, I'm sorry, two years and two or three months before the announcement of Hurlbut's Mormonism or Eber de Howe's Mormonism Unveiled. But there is this unknown person who in the Philadelphia album in 1831 says his name, I believe, they're talking about, uh, Mormonism and this uh, Ohio man who made the appearance uh, connected to the Mormons. He says, his name, I believe, is Henry Rangdon or Ringden or some such word. And I just want to note, this is about, what, 10 months after Rigdon and Joseph would have met in Kirtland, Ohio. Thou art the man, right? Oh, you're muted. That's all right. I was going to say, I think that was Newell Knight in February. But. Okay, Newell Knight, sorry. But no, but December of 1830. You've prayed me here, right? Yeah, December of 1830, though, is when Rigdon meets Smith. And September 17th of 1831, or some... Newell Whitney. I'm sorry. That? Yeah, Newell okay, Whitney, you're right. You're right. I get my Newells mixed up. That's okay. Newell Knight's the one that got thrown around the room being possessed by a demon, right? Yeah, he was from New York. I okay. The Knights were from New York. Yeah. So the Philadelphia album, September 17th, 1831, almost a year after Rigdon makes his first appearance with Smith is in terms of what uh, history sort of accepts as when those two met. I know, I know that we talked earlier that I'm not doing that right, but um, he says, you know, his name is Henry Rangdon. We, we get the name is not quite right. 
But again, Dan, if you don't mind, if you'll pipe up in the comments and just express, because I think you expressed to me that you agree and there's little argument that this guy is talking about Sidney Rigdon. Um, about the time that this person appeared among them, a splendid excavation was begun in a long, narrow hill between Manchester and Palmyra. This hill has since been called by some the Golden Bible Hill, the road from Canandagua, I don't know if I'm saying that right, to Palmyra, runs along its western base at the northern extremity. The hill is quite abrupt and narrow. I mean, this guy in near Philadelphia in a newspaper is getting some information close enough right that there's at least some credibility that the person has some, uh, he, he's informed about around Mormonism. He says, in the face of this hill, the money diggers renewed their work with fresh ardor, rig, ringed in, partly uniting with them in their operations. The ex-preacher from Ohio, which Rigdon was, thought of turning their digging concern into a religious plot and thereby have a better chance of working upon the credulity and ignorance of their associates in the neighborhood. Money and a good living might be got in this way. It was given out of the visions. It was given out. It was given out that visions had appeared to Joe Smith that a set of golden plates on which was engraved the Book of Mormon enclosed in the iron chest was deposited somewhere in the hill I have mentioned. People laughed at the first intimation of the story, but the Smiths and Rangdon, I mean, he gets the name wrong more than once in the article. You know what I mean? Like it's not even he gets Rigdon wrong. It's Ringdon and Rangdon. But the Smiths and Rangdon persisted uh, in its truth. Can I tell you the problem with this? Please. Okay, the fundamental problem with this, it doesn't mean it's not true. But the fundamental problem with this is anytime anybody's talking to me and telling me a story and they come up with a fact that I think is particularly germane to the discussion, the first thing I ask is, what is your basis of knowledge? That's a legal term. It kind of means what it says. How do you know what it is you're saying is true? And we have nothing of that in here. He doesn't say anything about how he knows that anything he's saying is true. He's just reporting something as if he's writing a story and expecting us to believe it. Now, this is, he's probably not a lawyer. And a lot of times non-lawyers are very happy to go along and talk about things as if they're true without talking about their basis of knowledge. And then when you ask them what their basis of knowledge is, oh, well, I heard it from this other guy. It's not admissible. So it would be helpful if we knew what this person's basis of knowledge was from which he's claiming to know these things are true. Absolutely. What this does do, though, is it moves us back a couple of years in at least going, it appears as though maybe 1831, this article, is the earliest instance in writing that I know of um, where somebody is proposing with some sort of credibility because they do know a little bit of what they're talking about in terms of the treasure digging and the hills and what what the scope of the treasure digs were. It moves the needle back a touch and says in 1831, someone at least is connecting dots and saying that Smith and Rigdon connected up and began plotting out the future coming forth of the Book of Mormon long before the Conneaut Creek witnesses have their version of what's going on that connects those two up. Right. Yeah. Now, I will say that when you 
mention it that way, I have to observe, if I'm reading this correctly, that there's nothing in here that specifically talks about a manuscript taken by Sidney Rigdon mm -mm. or that he engaged in an enterprise with Joseph Smith to produce the text of the Book of Mormon. No, and no mention of Spalding, of course. This is more of these two hooked up doing treasure digs, and Rigdon said there's better ways to make money uh, and talked about bringing forth some sort of, I think, religious work, right? All right, so there's that. And I found that interesting. I was pretty cool when I when I located this. Again, I'm not the first. Dan Vogel was well aware of this. Others are that delve into this issue. But this was the first time I dove into the issue, and I found this article quite interesting after having read in several older sources that 1833, 1844 was the earliest that Joseph had been connected to Rigdon. Yes, this does connect him with Rigdon in 1831 in a newspaper article. Yeah. All right, Lorenzo Saunders. Now, Lorenzo Saunders is uh, a, a, an acquaintance of the Smiths in uh, Palmyra. He's involved in the treasure digs. I don't think he's actually one of the treasure diggers, but he does witness some of the treasure digs. Uh, he certainly is aware of the treasure diggers in town and sort of like watches them and sort of observes what they're doing. Uh, he says, I saw Sidney Rigdon in the spring of 1827. I asked Harrison Smith who he was, and he said his name was Sidney Rigdon, a friend of Joseph's from Pennsylvania. I saw him in the fall of 1827 on the road between where I lived in Palmyra with Joseph. Uh, I asked Ingersoll, I think that's Peter Ingersoll. I asked Ingersoll who he was, and he said it was Rigdon. Then in the summer of 1828, I saw him at Samuel Lawrence's just before the harvest. Remember, Samuel Lawrence is the personage that once Alvin died, Joseph Smith claimed that Moroni said that Samuel Lawrence would be the one that would be taken to the hill and Joseph would get the plates. Uh, and then he decided after that that Samuel Lawrence wasn't the guy, and then it was decided that Emma Smith would be the person. Um, he said, I didn't see him again until he came to Palmyra to preach. And that's from Lorenzo Saunders. I got a question. Please. Who the heck is Harrison Smith? Isn't that one of the brothers of Joseph Smith? Isn't no. it? Hiram is as close as it gets. Okay. I so made a he point of getting, looking. Yeah, he may be getting it wrong. Which um, is a strange thing, mm -hmm. given the close association he had with the Smiths, to goof up Hiram's name and say Harrison Smith. I'm presuming he's talking about a member of the family. And that when he says, I went to the Smiths to eat, he means to the Joseph Smiths house to eat maple sugar. And I asked Harrison Smith who he was. Well, it would make sense if he's asking somebody who lives there the identity of a visitor. Oh, Saunders said it was Samuel Harrison Smith and then Hiram that the stranger was Rigdon. Okay, so Samuel Smith's middle name apparently is Harrison. So maybe that's what he was using. Yeah, it, it probably so does. Samuel Smith. Yeah, Mormonism does this thing with middle names. And uh, so S. Harrison Smith is uh, is brother Samuel of uh, Joseph's sibling, who also, again, tied very much to the Restoration, dies uh, shortly after the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram, uh, impossible due to a, a poisoning uh, that you covered in Apostolic Coup d'Etat. Yes, under somewhat mysterious circumstances. Yes. All right, so there's that one. Do you want to read? Uh, I think this is the second one. Nope, this, that's the one we just read. So would you mind reading this one? 
Okay, the whole thing or just down? I was met at the door by Harrison Smith, Joe's brother. So I'm guessing this is Samuel. I don't know why they're calling him Harrison. Maybe Samuel didn't like his first name and he wanted to go by his middle name. That happens. I was met at the door by Harrison Smith. By the way, uh, I was born 1811. I'm now 76 years of age. Yeah. So this is not from the uh, Mormonism unveiled. No, I don't think so. These are late gatherings of evidence. Yep. No, he would have been 22 or 23 when that book came out. Yeah. Okay, that in March of 1827, on or about the 15th of said month, because you know something? I remember this stuff. I went to the home of Joseph Smith for the purpose of getting some maple sugar to eat. Is this the same one? Yeah. That when I arrived at the house of said Joseph Smith, I was met at the door by Harrison Smith, Joe's brother. That at a distance of 10 or 12 rods from the house, there were five men that were engaged in talking, four of whom I knew. The fifth one was better dressed than the rest of those whom I was acquainted with. I inquired of Harrison Smith who the stranger was. He informed me his name was Sidney Rigdon, with whom I afterwards became acquainted with, oops, and found to be Sidney Rigdon. This was in March, A.D. 1827, the second spring after the death of my father. I was frequently at the house of Joseph Smith from 1827 to 1830, trying to get those damn golden plates that he stole from us. That in the summer of 1830, I heard Sidney Rigdon preach a sermon on Mormonism. That's weird. Why would he hear Sidney Rigdon preaching a sermon in 1830 if the entire ruse was supposed to be that Sidney Rigdon didn't know anything about the Book of Mormon until December of 1830, or at least, wait a second. He gets converted, but I think that's like in November, October, November of 1830. It's not in the summer of 1830. It's, it's unclear to me why Lorenzo Saunders is saying at the ripe old age of, how old is he? 77? Do you remember that? I don't, yeah, I don't know the age. 76 years right there. It's right up yeah. there. So 76 years, and now he's remembering Sidney Rigdon preach a sermon on Mormonism in 1830. I don't think that makes sense to anybody's theory. The only thing I can come up with is he's speaking about after he became acquainted with Mormonism, he right away is already preaching a sermon. Um, so that in the summer of 1830... But that doesn't make sense because, like you say, he doesn't convert until November. So maybe he's off by a year and it's 1831. But but I think what he's saying, though, is that when I heard Rigdon or saw Rigdon preach a sermon, I connected the dots, and that's the guy I remember that was the stranger that they told me was Sidney Rigdon. That's the guy that got me. That's the guy. All right, we are at 8 o'clock. I'm going to try to just tie up this last this section, and then we'll pick up next week. Uh, Lorenzo Saunders, a Smith family friend. This is another interview, same guy. Uh, did you ever see Sidney Rigdon in the neighborhood where you lived previous to 1830? When I got to the house, Harrison Smith told the same story, but he's recounting it to someone else. So I simply want to note, there's nothing new here. Except now um, he's going over for supper. Yeah, it, the story may be a little different, but... Unless, he, unless he has regularly for his supper maple sugar. Maybe. Pancakes right? for everyone. Okay, so now he's having supper, maple sugar in the other one. And the other statement's only given about three or four years apart from this statement, I believe. Yeah. Um, okay, let me, I'm going to skip past this. Oh, w sorry, was there something else in there you wanted to cover? No, 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 not necessarily. It's essentially the same thing. There's no reason to spend any extra time on that. Okay. R.W. Alderman, February 1852. 
Um, I was snowbound in a hotel in Mentor, Ohio, all day. Martin Harris was there. In conversation, told me he saw Joe Smith translate the Book of Mormon with his peepstone in his hat. By Oliver the way, Cow- that part makes sense, yep. right? Oliver Cowdery, who had been a school teacher, wrote it down. That makes sense too, right? Sidney Rigdon, a renegade preacher, was let in during the translation. Rigdon had stolen a manuscript from the printing office in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which Spalding, who had written it in the early part of the century, had left there to be printed. I just want to note, here's a com- to me, in my mind, without any other information, here's a complete stranger who's trying to connect himself to a kind of mysterious, cool story in history. Um, this wouldn't be the first time somebody said they interacted with someone when they never did. In fact, one of the running jokes in my family is that uh, a Cleveland Indians pitcher, I can't remember his name, but he threw a no-hitter back in the 1980s. And to this day, there's like 150,000 people who have claimed to be at that game, but the stadium only held like 48,000 people or something. Hmm. And so not everyone who claims to have been there could have been there. And this guy seems to be making a suggestion like, hey, I was at a hotel and Martin Harris was there and here's what Martin told me. Well, a lot of context is needed before you would go to believe that story. You'd need to know why Martin chose this guy to tell all of this to a complete have, stranger, by the way. Yeah. Just snowed in in Minter, Ohio, in a motel yeah. or a hotel all yep. day. You'd need but to substantiate that. Snowed in too. Yep. Without being substantiated, this would be essentially meaningless to me. Uh, and then Abel Chase, this one is interesting, brother of Willard and Sally Chase. He says, I was a youth at the time from 12 to 13 years old, having been born January 19th, 1814 at Palmyra, New York. During some of my visits at the Smiths, I saw a stranger who they said was Mr. Rigdon. He was at Smith several times, and it was in the year of 1827 when I first saw him there, as near as I can recollect. It seems to me, because this there's Abel, and then there's Lorenzo Saunders, and then as Dan's pointing out, there's another person or two in Palmyra who's also saying this. It feels a little bit to me like these four guys get together at the pub on the weekends and they all sort of have told this story so much that they now all sort of have the same story to tell, if that makes sense. Yes. Or they all have incredible memories very late in life. This is this one was published in 1879 and they all remember the same thing. Yeah. Because yeah. it's true, right? Right. Maybe. There's a lot of reason to question it. I'm just saying maybe. Yeah. Um, I think I think this is a great place to stop because okay. w- from here forward, we will get into some of the scriptures. This was uh, some of the things that I, I think are really important. You brought these to, to my attention, and I want to give these sort of their due time to talk about. But this is where in Mormon scripture – the voice of the Lord seems to be doing some things that lend, at least at first sight, seem to lend some credibility to the Spalding-Rigdon theory, and uh, we'll we'll go into those uh, next week. Um, I need a second to put the call-in studio into place if we want to take phone calls tonight. It won't take me long. But your thoughts so far? What what are you thinking as you've as you were going through the slides and preparing and doing your own research? What were some of your feelings about what's been presented thus far and the weight that it's it has uh, in terms of how you're swayed? 
Well, I will tell you that I did not know about a lot of this information, or if I did, I had forgotten it. I think I read that book that you had up on a slide earlier, the one about uh, that came out in the 70s, the one with Cowdery and uh, Davis, I think it was. Yeah, they had a different cover at the time, but I read that. I bought it at the local Christian bookstore. I looked around to make sure no Mormons were watching me go inside. But I got this book and I read it. This was shortly after I got baptized. So this would have been probably late 78 or 79 sometime. It was before my mission. And I read through this and I remembered only a very few things. The, the one thing I remembered was that some of the witnesses claimed to remember the name Nephi or Moroni. In other words, that they're saying that the manuscript that they had read by Spalding had those names in common with the Book of Mormon. I put that on my shelf. I went on my mission. I'm reading Articles of Faith. There's a wonderful footnote in there about the discovery of this manuscript in Honolulu, Hawaii, and how it bears no resemblance whatsoever to the Book of Mormon. So I thought, well, that's over. That's done. Case closed. And I don't have to worry about this anymore. So whereas I've looked at and studied a lot of things relating to Mormonism since then, this is not one of them. And I've also relied on the fact that uh, notable scholars such as Dan Vogel do not accept this as likely or really, I don't want to put words in his mouth, possible, anything's possible, but it's not plausible, I think. So when Dan Vogel says something like that, and other scholars say things like that, I have to pay attention, and that was good enough for me. So when I went through these slides that you had researched and put together, I was surprised at the amount of evidence that there is in favor of this theory. And the best I can say, I'm not convinced at this point, I'm not persuaded about the Solomon Spaulding theory at this point, but I also think that it's not something that can just be laughed off. Yeah, and I I feel very much the same way. By the way, folks, if you want to call in 662-667-6667, there was a lot more evidence than I expected. I knew there were these eight witnesses from the Hurlbut affidavits. I knew that there was uh, some conversation in the Rigdon family uh, about his connection. We'll share that in the next show when we cover the finishing part of this presentation. But uh, I knew that there was someone in the Rigdon family who had said something about dad or grandpa being connected to it. And that was sort of the extent of it. And I was sort of not by the credibility of each piece of evidence, but by the number of pieces of evidence, I was sort of overwhelmed by how much is out there that makes this connection, both by associates of Joseph Smith, ministers in the Spalding uh, area, uh, 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 family members of Spalding. Um, it, it just, it's not just one line of people. It's not just Hurlbut and some affidavits. It's, it's multifaceted. It's in multiple directions and it it's just more witnesses than I had anticipated I would have to sort of sort through. And like you, uh, I probably, I probably at times am a little more leaning towards it than I think you're describing, but I'm not convinced, but I find it really interesting. And I find that some of these sources, like the post office stuff, you know, Rigdon's saying I've, I wasn't there. And yet, when he says he's not there, there's a piece of mail waiting for him on more than one occasion. 
that strikes me as like we shouldn't just discard it entirely. Let's let's delve through it. And so next week we will show you the second half of this information, uh, and we'll sort of share if our views updated all after we get through that portion. And I'm really excited because we'll start off next week talking about LDS scriptures and how they connect to the Rigdon Spalding theory. In anything else from you, my I, friend? I was also going to say that when you get to the story, there's conflicting stories about the printing press in Pittsburgh, the printing office. Either Sidney Rigdon was there at some point, or he was never there at any point. And Sidney Rigdon says, I was never there. At least that's how I take his statement, that I was never there. I never heard of this guy, Same. Patterson. Nope, 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 nope. Blanket denial. Total alibi defense. But then you've got that uh, that lady who was the daughter of one postmaster in Pittsburgh and then married the second postmaster or the next postmaster or a subsequent postmaster in Pittsburgh. And she says, well, wait, is she about the post office? So she's about the post office, isn't she? Yeah. But there are other people who say that he was there at the um, the printing office as well. Yeah. Well, they both can't be true. Right. Either he was there during the time period, as some people recollect, or he was uh, not there, as Sidney Rigdon claimed. So that's an interesting issue because there's a direct contradiction there. Another little side tangent, as I delved into all of this, I was constantly reminded of the uh, conversations that we had had regarding Joseph Smith's polygamy. And uh, um, I'm going blank for a moment, but what's the what's the lady's name with 132 problems? Oh, I never speak that name. Okay. Um, can you get... Okay. <laughs> well, then I'm sort of stuck because I want to use it. What's, what is it, Maven? What is it's the name? It's Michelle, Michelle, Michelle Stone. Stone. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thank you. So Michelle Stone and those who agree with her, um, they see a lot of weight in their side of the evidence and they have this ability in their head to discard the proponents that joseph smith is where polygamy originated and it it sort of i sort of it doesn't escape me that this sort of is that same kind of debate going on where one side seems to have enough evidence that they are utterly convinced of this and I can see, I can see how they got there. I can see why it gave, it held weight, why it took their interest, why they felt it, it connected the dots for them. And I can also understand Dan Vogel's side and the historians and scholars and researchers who uh, <laughs> are aware of why this theory doesn't hold up in their minds. And I can see why there's this battle and some people are like, no, Definitely rigged in Spalding. This is what happened. And others are like, this doesn't work no matter what you do. Um, it doesn't escape me that there are some significant similarities. Not to say which one's true or which one isn't, but I can see why certain theories held by the minority still do have enough weight to convince the minority. And at least to me seem interesting enough to go like like you said we shouldn't just laugh it off this this deserves some real uh, consideration yeah i'll tell you one of the other problems i have with the theory is that it's very easy in retrospect and looking at the way things turned out 
to go and say, oh, well, this was Sidney Rigdon. This is why he got together with Joseph Smith. And this is why Joseph Smith got together with Sidney Rigdon in order to produce this. It becomes more difficult when you're trying to envision how this actually happened in real time at the time it was happening, because the way things played out haven't played out yet. So why is Sidney Rigdon hooking his wagon to a money digger, right? He's a, he's a reverend. He's a minister of the Bible. He may have different ideas than other ministers, but who didn't and who doesn't today? But Mormonism is kind of a step beyond that. I mean, that's a quantum leap beyond most regular forms of Christianity. Why does he feel he has to hook his wagon to Joseph Smith's star in order to become the leader of his own church and version of Christianity when one would think he could do that on his own much more easily and without all this difficulty and without, you know, going to Joseph Smith of all people and by the same token, why does Joseph Smith feel that he needs to go to Sidney Rigdon and have him over there giving all the, um, oh, the, uh, the religious parts of the text, right? Why does he need that? There's nothing so phenomenal in the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith could not have come up with it himself. So my question then is, why would they do this? And what makes sense in real time for them to have done this? That's my question, because yeah. it doesn't seem really likely that they would get together. This is the this is an odd couple. Yeah. As you pointed out in your Mormon Sunday School podcast, you know, with with Joseph Smith Sr.'s vision of the Tree of Life sort of replicated in the Book of Mormon, the critic already clearly understands that Joseph Smith's fingerprint is in the book. Now you're adding Sidney Rigdon's fingerprint on top of Solomon Spaulding's fingerprint on top of copying in a bunch of uh, Old Testament and a limited amount, unfortunately for believers, of New Testament material. And the more fingers you kind of have in it, the more complicated you make it. And you hinted at, and I don't think we'll cover it per se next week, so I'll at least mention it here. But not only do you have this kind of all this uh, cloak and dagger stuff for how Smith and Rigdon meet and get involved with each other, but then you have to come up with a way in which the missionaries from the LDS church, from the Mormon church, get to Sidney Rigdon's locale, convince Rigdon of the message, but aren't in on the conspiracy, but Joseph needs them to meet Sidney in order to bring him back here so that they can finally really implement this on in real time and go public with their connection to each other. And so you need Parley Pratt to be in on it, or you need to add some more conspiracy and have Rigdon telling Joseph, just get them here, I'll figure out how to bump into them and get the conversation started. And now you're complicating the story even more. And so there are lots of little loose ends that make this sort of a, another conspiracy theory in, in order to make all the moving parts come together. That said, I'll, I'll simply, before we go to phone calls, say there's enough in this that I intentionally felt myself need to slow down and really take seriously every piece of evidence rather than wanting to dismiss it out of hand. Yes, and I'm very glad that you did. And I'll tell you that the two problems, the two gaping holes, and I know I talked about this with you not long before the show today, the two gaping holes I see are, number one, that the argument is from a lack of evidence. We don't have the manuscript. 
even when it was found, it wasn't found. That I, It was the wrong one, okay? Right. It's found, but that's not close enough, so that can't be the right one. So that's one problem. The second problem is there's no direct evidence, which means there's nobody saying that they saw them working on the Book of Mormon together. Yeah. Nothing like that. And either one of those could be fatal to the theory, and both of them together pose a real problem from my point of view. Yeah, love it. Okay, folks, we will go to the phones. We've only got one call in the phone bank, but if somebody wants to call while that while we're taking that one and talking to that person, feel free. It is 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS. Uh, all right, here we will go to the first call caller. What's the name? Oop, let me try something, Mark. I've got you on my phone, but I have you connected to the roadcaster, so just give me a second here. Uh, oops. Uh, let's try calling him back. Sorry, that ended up. Hmm. Sorry about that, Mark. I'm not sure what happened. Something happened here. Um, give me a moment. Uh, this is the things you don't want in a live show is when things just sort of go haywire. My phone hung up the host call, but I think he's still in the call here. So I just got to try to um, drop. Let's try that. And I've got to reinitiate the host call, but that shouldn't take but a moment. Sorry about this, okay. folks. This is what happens in live programming. So... Aaron Smith is asking, could Joseph have been exposed to the Spalding manuscript and it just became one more thing in his environment that he drew from to create the Book of Mormon? The answer to that is yes, because it deals in possibilities. However, he didn't have to be exposed to the Spalding manuscript, at least the one that was found, because View of the Hebrews and tons of other books were being written at the time, which were considered to be scholarly treatises, not just romance novels, i.e. a fictional adventure novel. But scholarly treatises like A View of the Hebrews, which was very well received and which had been published, yes, a number of different times, and I think probably made a tidy sum for its author. However, this is something that was in the air. You didn't even have to read a book to know that this was the general outline of the origin story of the Native Americans. And you could take it from there. And Joseph Smith may have done just that. He didn't actually have to read something to uh get that idea although he may have okay thank you rfm for doing that um all right caller what's the name mark go ahead my friend you're on mormonism live yeah hi um so i've listened to you guys the longest and um i really like your research but i have to disagree with you guys on joseph being a polygamist and I'm willing to debate you guys on your show live. Okay. So, oh, I'm sorry. I'll just hold on my, I'll just hold on to my tongue and you take this one, Bill. Um, all right, Clark, why don't you reach out to me after the show's over, but I don't even know who you are or what's your last name or what's your standing. And it would be sort of, uh, it would, Clark. it's Mark. Clark. Mark. No, Clark. Is it Clark or Mark? Yeah, Clark. Clark. It is Clark. Is your last name Kent, and do you wear eyeglasses? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. 
So have you published anything on the subject? Um, yes, I published a um, document on who killed Joseph Smith. And we talked on the phone previously. And I like to debate on polygamy. Oh, oh. Um, I used to be, believe Joseph was a polygamist, and I don't anymore. I, I think I know you, don't I? Yes. We've communicated, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll let Bill take it, because I don't consider myself an expert on the subject. Yeah. I am a quasi-expert on one tiny slice of the subject, yeah. which I think is probably pretty um, pretty uh, uh, determinative of the issue. I'm talking about the Nauvoo expositor affidavits. But um, I don't know, Bill. And I like to, yeah. Clark, hold on a minute, Clark. I like to cut it. Okay. Yeah, hold, hold on. I, I hear you, but what RFM is saying is, yes, I'm not an expert in the area either. I, I know a thing or two about the land deeds as I researched them. So we could debate you on a thing or two, but I don't know that this will make a lot of sense. Again, I'm not trying to avoid you. I'm, I'm happy to have these conversations, but it seems like trying to field this call at the end of a show regarding a different topic isn't the right place. Will you please email, okay, well, please email okay. me? Yeah, please email me. Mormon discussions with an S on the end podcast with an S on the end at gmail.com and send me what it is you'd like to go into and uh, I will work with you behind the scenes to try to facilitate some way that my views or RFM's views can be juxtaposed against yours. Okay, and I'm happy to talk about your land deeds. Yeah, I want to answer that question it. for Sweet. you. Well. I'd, can I'd you love tell that. us why Michelle Stone won't? Um, what? Yeah. If you know. Do you know Michelle Stone at all? Yeah, I talked to her today. I told her I'd be doing this. Oh, does she not want to do she it wouldn't. herself? She, she's done like five hours, five episodes now, I think, on, on the land deeds. So we're hoping if you want to come on and talk about that, if you can synthesize what the 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 best of that is that, that really goes there. But I, I think the issue was that we never really got around to was sharing again beforehand before the show yeah. actually having answers to these questions because we're, i think it could be for both sides but i know for our side for sure just kind of feels like any any time we tried to ask a direct question we never got a direct answer in you know yeah. in the multiple email chains that we went through they never yeah. were presenting so it's just it just stayed uh, nebulous the whole time they weren't willing to that. do what yeah. we uh, did yeah which so, which was so, to yeah. provide what our arguments are so i think at the very bare minimum you I, need to I email bill and show to that go. you can do that totally okay so so, yep. so do so, that in the email yep so clark i would expect the same okay. out of you but the other thing is i just want to express i'm a little disappointed that you already preemptively wanted to do this and you did it this way to come on when we're talking about a different topic and sort of like, ha gotcha, I want to do this thing, when really we ask that the phone calls have to do with the topic we talked about. Everybody who tuned in tonight wants to hear about the Spalding-Rigdon theory, so I'm going to let you go. By all means, uh, reach out to me by email, but in the future, call regarding the topic of the show. We really don't like fielding calls on different subjects. I'm always available by email or Facebook message, okay? Before you go, Clark, I just wanted to ask you, is it correct? Right. Uh, Clark? Before you go, is it is it okay to ask you, am I correct that your answer to the question that you had mentioned earlier of who killed Joseph Smith, the answer is John Taylor? 
I believe John Taylor and Wilbur Richards, and then there was the conspiracy of the murder itself right. that involved others. And Brigham Young is the one who gave the the hit. He put the hit out. Yes, starting. Yes, he planned it from 1841. Okay. All right. I'm gonna let you go, Clark. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling, Clark. All right. So, so not one conspiracy theory, but two. <laughs> okay. All right, folks. Yeah. There's a reason I asked him that because I knew the answer. Yeah. But um, I know he believes it. He thinks he's got evidence for it. There's other people who think so too. Um, Everybody but the expert that they hired to go into who killed Joseph Smith. The expert doesn't believe them. I've got to tell you a story about last sunstone when I'm there in the lobby and I had just arrived and all of a sudden Don Bradley's coming out of one of the presentations and I'm standing there with him and some other friends and I'm talking to Don Bradley about Michelle Stone and about her position that Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy and I mentioned to him I said well of course as you know there are some some historians believe that he did practice polygamy and there's some historians who believe that he didn't. And Don looks at me all wide-eyed in his Don Bradley kind of way. And he goes, looks at me and says, Radio Free Mormon, I'm not aware of any historians that, be- any historians, I think he emphasized the word, I'm not, not aware researchers. of any historians that believe Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. And that right. was when I erupted in laughter. Yeah, just researchers. Yes, researcher <laughs> writers. <laughs> not archaeologist or scientist yeah nope okay uh let's go to the next caller uh caller what's the what's the name my name is bob hoffy bob how are you doing tonight bob Hossie. i'm real good 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 yeah i uh what i wanted to share yeah what i wanted to share uh i'm i've always been fascinated by mormonism i am not an, a mormon or ex uh or I'd say for the last 15 years or so. Uh, one of the things that I was kind of surprised by uh, was that I uh, just the day before yesterday, I saw a two-year-old video that you and a bunch of other guys did, and you were talking about, the, you know, what is the origin, and you were very dismissive of the rigging theory. I came in very late, so I've just caught the tail end and your first caller. So uh, I just wanted to say that I... Think you guys are on the right track in being open to this theory i really do believe that it's uh you believe it bob i i am i would i would i would say in light of the fact that so many experts don't i'm probably 85 percent 85 and sure that it did happen i'm not 85 percent believing the 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 spalding theory i mean obviously you have a ton of information and a lot of it is it go ahead i i'm sorry i just want to answer oh. a question um I would presume yeah, I, I, I really you're familiar just, with the material, right? You're familiar with the, the I'm, I'm reasonable. I, yeah, I just, I just went back to reread. Uh, it just so happened. I just went back two days ago to start rereading uh, who really wrote the Book of Mormon, which I've always thought was very impressive. Yeah. Uh, the sheer quantity of information. What I want to ask yeah. you. Yeah. And I guess I really just go I'm ahead. I'm a big I'm sorry. From way back, and I apologize, Bob. But the question I want to ask you yeah, is your opinion that, on since you're pretty familiar with the subject matter, do you think that Bill and sure. I, mainly Bill, did a reasonably good job of covering the main evidence points in tonight's show? Well, that's the thing. I, I, I came in very late. 
uh, and only kind of caught your tail end. So I'm going back to reread it, and I'm look, looking forward to, to to your next broadcast. I will uh, say that, Dan and I, Vogel, I guess what I really, I'm sorry, Dan Vogel did uh-huh. say he thought we did a good job going over the evidence. He got to look at the slides before the show. So very I, good. I, please tell us. What yeah, you I mean, Bob. Yeah, mainly I wanted I wanted to, uh, to 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 thank you for for what you did. I'm looking forward to seeing it uh, and make the statement. I think Sidney Rigdon's flip out in 1939 to the newspaper article about uh, the uh, the about the, the the widow reiterating the the Book of Mormon in a newspaper article. I think mm-hmm. that flip out is is exactly the way liars respond when they deny that they were wrong and they want to call the other people liars. Uh, I realize that's not a, a strong uh, argument for in a courtroom, but it's completely psychologically true. So I really don't have a question, but I really wanted to make that statement. Bob, do you mean when he was using the kind of uh, uh, ad hominem language? Yeah, calling everybody a lying liar who lies constantly when they're lying. and. Yeah. Solomon Spalding wasn't a good husband because he didn't teach his wife not to lie. I mean, that's not a, you know, this is supposed to be a smart guy. And that is, is, is the angry flip out of a liar in my opinion. But I, I don't, I don't regard that as, as substantive. What I do regard as more substantive is the fact that, uh, none of these people, not that who signed these affidavits recanted, but the book, but the, the Mormons didn't go out and re-interview them all and try to find cracks in their stories. And I think that speaks, I think that speaks very much to, uh, you know, what Joseph Smith would have known, whether he got it from God or whether he made it up, or whether Rigdon, who got his information from God, or made it up. You know, if they knew that theory wasn't true, they would, they would have sought down every piece of evidence and destroyed that piece of evidence. Uh, and they did not do that. They, 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 Rigdon flipped out. And other than that, they kind of ignored it. Okay. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for the call. Yeah, thanks, Bob. All right. Well, th- hey, thank, th- thank you for giving, giving me your time. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. There are no more calls in the call bank, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the calls now. I'm over here wondering what, what Clark and Michelle Stone were talking about yeah. earlier today. And again, I, I think... I, 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 <laughs> What I want to what I want to avoid RFM is that people think that we're afraid to tackle things, which I think is the furthest from the truth. And the, you know, ten years I've been doing this, and and you in podcast form for like six or seven, and then in writing form for years and years before that. Yes. Um, happy to tackle any subject, but you can't just take a caller and go, "I'll make a show out of you," and not know much about what they're going to do with that. So Clark, there'll have to be a lot of planning behind the scenes. And I'm happy if you're willing to be open about what it is you want to accomplish and allow us to share the same. Can I mention this publicly at this point? Yeah, please. Is that Michelle Stone is supposed to be in negotiations right now to debate you, Bill Real, on the subject of the land deeds. And in fact, if she backs out at this point, she would be uh, going back on her word. Yeah. So I'm not going to give any more details about that. But I think that Michelle Stone needs to have a discussion slash debate with you about the subject of the land deeds in Nauvoo, what they do and don't mean before we go anywhere else with anybody else. In other words, I'd rather have you discuss it with Michelle than with a 
lieutenant of hers or a cat's paw of hers. Yeah. And I'll just note, I haven't been in any negotiation with her. There's a, a, a middle person who is trying to facilitate those conversations happening. They have worked with Michelle and given her plenty of space to try to make this happen. Michelle expresses that she wants she covered the land deeds on her own, that she would be happy to sit down in a space that's shared with me and to go over that. And I'm waiting for someone to tell me it's time for that to happen. But I just want, I don't want anybody to accuse me of misrepresenting things. I've never in the last, whatever, since the last time we posited what, what had been going on, I haven't talked to Michelle, I think since then. Um, so I'm waiting for that middle party to put the two of us together, but I'm ready at any moment to have that conversation. And if I can just say a couple words about Clark Abood, yes, I've been in some contact with him. He reached out to me and has asked me questions. It's been a while since we communicated, mostly by either text or email or whatever. I, I think we've spoken on the phone as well, but it's been a while. Uh, he's very, very a nice fellow. He's very enthusiastic about the subject. He's done a great deal of research. He holds views which I believe are in the minority, uh, both as to who killed Joseph Smith as well as Joseph Smith's not practicing polygamy. Um, but he's he's a researcher and he's very enthused about it. And I just want to say he seems like a very nice guy and well-intentioned. Yeah, and I, I will sincerely interact with that, trying to make something happen. Because I think these are conversations people do want to hear mm -hmm. uh, is how this evidence all pans out when people get to in a free long form conversation, ask follow-up questions and follow the logic to its inevitable end. Um, awesome. So it, anything Somebody put the name up there. Yeah. The, the middle person. Guy uh, McDude. Uh, any mm. thoughts from you, RFM, before, I ought we, to... before we close out the show? <clears throat> no, except I'm looking forward to it because after Brigden joins the church, after he does hear about the Book of Mormon, after he does meet Joseph Smith and he joins the church, he his rise is meteoric. And it's I mean, very interesting. Oh, yeah. It is very interesting. The position of influence he assumes almost immediately in the LDS church, which I think is pretty much undisputed by any scholar. In fact, it's one of the reasons that David Whitmer gave for his getting disgruntled and leaving was this incredible influence that he saw and reported Sidney Rigdon as having over Joseph Smith when it came to introducing doctrine. Yep. So next Wednesday, 6.20 p.m., if the lizard people don't stop us before then.